tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. Well, we are into the second week of the first Grand Slam of 2020, Mike, down under from Melbourne. And while a few Canadian hopefuls are now out, one still stands on the men's side. The big three are all still in contention to add to their slam titles. And the women's field is guaranteed to have a new Aussie Open champion. That's great to say that we've still got two Canadians in the draws. Milos uh, Raonic, who's continuing his strong play in Melbourne, which he seems to do almost annually, uh, along with Gabby Dabrowski, the rock of Canadian doubles, who is still alive in both the uh, women's doubles and mixed doubles draws. And who better to talk to this week uh, about the Canadian contingent and how they've performed, not just here in Melbourne, but over the past year, than uh, Tennis Canada President and CEO, Michael Downey. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so, Michael, you obviously hold quite an important role with Tennis Canada uh, as an organization, but uh, stepping back from that job for a moment, just as a tennis fan, how excited are you to have the first two weeks of Grand Slam Tennis of the Year underway? Well, it sure says that uh, the season has started because I really do look forward to the Aussie Open. Uh, it's just great that a sport actually gets to the highest level within, what, three weeks of, of a new season starting. And, uh, you know... It, Unfortunately, our kids bowed out early and Bianca was injured, so she didn't get to compete. But I think it's a great story that Milos has um, got to the fourth round and it's great to see him healthy and his A-game in place. And and hopefully he can continue that run. And uh, I guess before we kind of get into detail about uh, Milos Raonic, uh, just wondering for some of our our listeners who are tuning in, what was your background, Michael, uh, within the sport growing up and how did you get involved in tennis? It's a good question, actually. Um, I've always been a sports fan of all sports. So so I remember as a kid watching the Grand Slams in the summer at my grandfather's cottage. And then I'd go up up to the, the road where they had some outdoor courts and I'd hit a ball and he'd come up. And unfortunately, he couldn't play tennis, but he actually loved the game. So those are experiences I carried forward. But I really don't play uh, tennis at all. Um, I was hired in 2004, uh, partly because the board of Tennis Canada wanted to change. And at that point in time, um, they saw my, my general management background and my marketing background from companies like Molson that I work for. But they also um, <clears throat> wanted to, um, to bring some new blood in. And because at that point in time, uh, Tennis Canada was known for really putting on two phenomenal tennis tournaments called the Rogers Cups. But we really weren't making the kind of inroads that we wanted to in uh, in tennis development, especially high performance. And they thought a change from somebody from the outside would be um, worth the risk. And luckily, I convinced them that you don't have to have a backhand to be the CEO of Tennis Canada. <laughs> What, what does the president and CEO role actually entail for those who aren't familiar? Uh, I'm imagining your day-to-day is quite different, but uh, what are some of the things, Michael, that, that you're responsible for? Well, fundamentally, I'm responsible to the board because I'm the, uh, the chief executive of the organization, and it really starts with just general management and leadership. But that really starts with strategy. I, I really think the ultimate job of the chief executive is to steer the strategy of the company with obviously input from the board and from management and staff. Because if you don't have a strategy that everyone buys into, you're kind of rudderless at that end. 
And fundamentally, um, in my position, we're responsible to make the numbers. And the numbers are whatever surplus target or deficit we sell to the board for that year. And on top of that, we obviously have targets um, across many different areas of tennis development and the commercial side of the business. Like I use a thing called a dashboard, which is quite common in companies where you set a, a bunch of targets. And then when we meet with the board quarterly, we take the board through where we are in the dashboard. And, and as a management team, we review that dashboard on a monthly basis and with all staff in Tennis Canada on a quarterly basis. I guess if you're looking at that dashboard right now, you guys are hitting a lot of the targets that you probably set out a year ago. We did. It's a new year, so we're pretty early into 2020, but we did quite well last year. And I, I would say that, quite frankly, on the high performance side, um, really because of the prowess of players like Dennis and Felix and, and obviously Bianca and the Davis Cup and Fed Cup team, we, we overachieved a lot of the metrics that we had as targets for 2019. And it really speaks to the talent that is out there representing Canada on the global scene. And uh, I have to ask, does that then change any of those targets maybe for 2020? It has actually. Like at the end of the day, um, the way we look at our business is that we believe we are one of the leading tennis nations in the world. That doesn't mean the, it means one of, because I think we're in that in that range right now with the number of, of players we have in the top 50 and top 30 in the men's side. And obviously Bianca sitting in the top 10 on the uh, on the women's side so you know the targets are higher for all those players and for davis cup and fed cup i'm not going to say what they are because it's really a discussion between the coaches and the players but at the end of the day we need to raise the bar as a country and a federation because the expectations of our fans of the canadian players will continually do better and that's what progress is all about yeah, certainly. The the players have been the ones who have uh, simply raised the bar, especially over these past couple of years. And uh, I, I want to talk a bit about Milos Raonic because I, I think Milos was, was sort of out of Canadian tennis fans' consciousness a little bit heading into Melbourne. Uh, and yet again, here he is making the second week of a Grand Slam. He's now made five quarterfinals at the Australian Open. Uh, I'm sure you followed his career from the sidelines to, to some degree, uh, and he's really a veteran of the tour now. Are, are you surprised by what he's done here? Not at all, actually. Like he, you know, when, when Milos is healthy, he has a serve that is at the top of the game across, you know, the ATP, and he can, he can rally with the best of them, and he just has to be healthy. And I think the other thing with Milos is that he knows how to play Grand Slams, and he knows how to peak at Grand Slams. And that's partly why, despite not playing much last year, he's actually kept his ranking relatively high. Is because he's done relatively well in the Grand Slams. And, um, you know, one thing I've learned coming from the outside over the last 15 years is that players have to learn to peak at the Slams, and they're a different beast. And it takes a while for players to get used to the extra pressure that Grand Slams provide, and especially the, 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 the matches being longer on the men's side being five sets. But Milos has been around long enough that he knows what it takes. He works his game to peak for the slams. And I think you know part of the advantage that the Aussie Open provides is it gives him a long off-season to prepare for that first Grand Slam. And uh, his body, I think, wears down during the year. And that's partly why I think he always does well at the Aussie Open. 
Speaking of peaking at the slams, there's three guys who are still, of course, they always are, uh, in the second week of the slam. That's Federer, Djokovic, and, and Nadal. Uh, 55 slams in total from that trio, which is just always mind-boggling when you think about it. Uh, I know Milos is going up against uh, Novak Djokovic uh, as we're speaking uh, not too long from now, but are you anticipating that uh, one of these three guys once again emerges victorious here in Melbourne? Well, you have to think that the odds are with them. But I do think there's some some fellows knocking on the door. Like Zarev is playing better than he has recently. I think Team is playing sensational uh, tennis. So I think there's always going to be those outsiders that tend to be younger, uh, and they're getting more and more experience. Like we've seen Team do well on clay, and I wouldn't be surprised that, that there might be an upset in front of him to get him deep into the Aussie Open. But I think you're right. You have to look at the odds of one of the big three winning this thing. It goes back to the comment I made about Milos. They know how to peak for slams. They know how to handle the pressure. And uh, they're probably going to be the last man standing. And it is just an unbelievable tribute to their ability to perform at that level at an age when 10 years ago it was just not heard of that these players could do so well in their into their 30s. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. My uh, our guest this week is uh, tennis president and CEO Michael Downey, and of course alongside co-host Mike McIntyre. As we're uh, midway through the first Grand Slam of the season, the Australian Open, and uh, touching on the Canadian contingency, I mean, you hit on the points of uh, these players knowing how to peak at Grand Slams. And look, we've seen marvelous performances from Denis Shapovalov just over the past uh, few months. I mean, he captured his first title in Stockholm, Sweden. He was in the Paris Masters final. He played so incredibly well at Davis Cup and then he beat a couple top 10 players at the ATP Cup. What do you think maybe is missing for Dennis at at the Grand Slam level? Well, you know, I said it the other day, I think he just had an off night in his first uh, first match because Dennis has been on a roll. Like I truly believe and, and people that I trust their judgment around the world you know, clearly said he finished the year as a top 10 player. Now, I know he finished at 15 or 14, but truly was playing like he was top 10. And, you know, I know for a fact, as his mother told me, that, you know, Dennis actually arrived in Australia on December 15th, and he was practicing with Usney. So, you know, that's he was ready and prepared. And that's why I think we saw that phenomenal run continue from Davis Cup into the ATP Cup. So all things were clicking for Dennis. I just think Whatever happened in that first match, did he feel pressure? It was all on him. He was the favorite. Um, he obviously got it got under his skin a bit, and he, he unraveled a bit, which can happen to players. But I don't think we shouldn't look at that loss as a bad sign. At the end of the day, he will learn from it because he always says he does, and he is going to go deep in a lot of slams this year because this kid is playing like he's top 10. He just had a bad day at the office. And Kid is right, only 20 years old as well. I think we need to remember that, despite that he's had such big moments over the past three years. He's still so young and has so much ahead of him to learn and grow and evolve. Who are some of the uh, younger players that Canadian tennis fans might not yet be uh, as well uh, you know, known about that you think we should keep an eye on? I think certainly there was one who qualified for the Aussie Open for the first time in Leila Annie Fernandez. Maybe you want to talk about her, but who are some people Absolutely. that excite, like excite we, we are so excited about Miss Fernandez. She's only 17 years of age. You know, for the, the viewers that, that aren't close to it, she, she won the Roland Garros 
junior singles title last year, the first time a Canadian has ever won that on clay. She sits within the top 200 right now, and she qualified for the Aussie Open. And, you know, our fans would realize that, you know, yeah, we would have liked her to win one or two rounds of the main draw, but at her age, just to qualify is an, an amazing accomplishment. So, you know, expect to hear her name when the Fed Cup team plays in, in Switzerland in early February, and she's a big part of the future of Canadian tennis and, and, a, and a nice compliment to uh, to Bianca and uh, a resurging uh, Jeannie Bouchard. Michael, you, you touched on uh, your background and joining Tennis Canada in, in your role back in 2004, and I know you carried that for a lengthy period of time to 2013 and then returned again in 2017. Um, what do you think has changed or what have you seen really change around the atmosphere and attitude toward tennis in this country, just maybe compared to when you, you started back in 2004? Well, we didn't have a winning attitude back in 2004. We had a winning attitude around the two tournaments because those tournaments were juggernauts back then. They were extremely well managed. They generated a lot of uh, revenue. Um, you know, and a lot of that extra profit went into the building of the then Rexall Center, which is now the Aviva Center. But it was not an organization that had confidence in high performance because, quite frankly, the organization of the country really had not been performing at standards that we should be given the resources that were there at the time. And, you know, I do recall we had gone seven long years without a top 100 singles player. Like think of it, top 100, seven long years. Daniel Nestor was winning slams and winning ATP events, but that was on the double side and he was out on his own. He was about the only player that ever reached the second round back in 2000, the second week of a slam back in 2004. So the fundamental change is there's, this, there's, there's a humble confidence, and that's part of kind of the culture that Louis Borfiga has brought to the high-performance department. We talk about confident but humble, and we try to actually instill that in the players. And I think the organization has that. The interesting thing now is what it goes back to a question you raised earlier about, you know, the dashboard and are the standards higher. The organization is coming around that it's okay to put higher targets. Like, we do have a, a nation that's doing well, and we've got a lot of great players, and the teams are strengthening. There's no reason why Canada can, can't continually do bet, better and, and advance in the standings around the world as, a, as a, a leading tennis nation. And I think that's just kind of that confidence, humbleness coming through as well. But it's okay to say we think we're going to go this far in Davis Cup or Fed Cup because we're there. And these kids are young enough that they are eventually going to win this. There's nothing wrong with saying that. It's not overconfidence. The facts are that Felix and Addison, Milos and Vasek should be able to win Davis Cup at some point in time, as an example. You talked last summer, Michael, about how the Rogers Cups are the engine for Tennis uh, Canada in terms of raising funds for the program and how when that meets up with high performance like Bianca's result, it really acts as a multiplier effect. Have you seen some tangible gains in that sense since her incredible summer and rise to the top of the women's games, getting more people, more kids interested in the sport, putting rackets in kids' hands in Canada like we've never seen before? Absolutely. Like um, our national tracking study that goes to field every September showed that um, over 250,000 kids played frequently in the summer last summer and frequently means they play at least once a week over 
the eight weeks of the summer because we are a summer sport because we don't have enough covered courts for people to play year round. And I don't know the number offhand, but I would easily estimate if you went back 10 years ago, that was probably a fraction of that number. And it's come from the inspiration that first Milos and Jeannie brought and then Vasek brought, and now we're seeing it with Dennis and, and Felix and, of course, Bianca and Gabby and doubles. All those players excelling on the global scene, going deep into tournaments, winning a Grand Slam in Bianca's case, getting the finals in Davis Cup, all of those things are actually um, raising the profile of our sport. I, I like to say it's in the wheelhouse of Canadian sports fans right now. And kids are no different. And that's why they're picking up a racket because they want to be Bianca and they want to be Felix and they want to be Dennis. And uh, yeah, I mean, here we think this really is truly the golden age uh, of tennis in our country. And Michael, thanks so much uh, for joining us and and giving your uh, inside perspective on Canadian tennis and how this sport uh, continues to grow. And I'm sure we're going to see many more great achievements from all these fantastic players uh, for years to come. Thank you for the opportunity. There you have it, President and CEO of Tennis Canada, Michael Downey, joining us on the line. And I I love how excited he seems about Canadian tennis. Obviously, maybe you would be thinking he is biased, but uh, this is the reality of uh, how well players are doing in this country. Yeah, that Canadian tennis and tennis players and fans alike have a humble confidence, which is absolutely warranted right now. Yeah, it's deserved. And, you know, when we got off the line with Michael, he went on to talk to you and me a little bit about how, you know, the initial targets, even though he didn't give specifics, the initial targets he felt that were set out this year were a little bit low. And he said, no, wait a minute. We can do better than this. We can aim higher than this. And the players are going to want to aim higher too. Exactly. And and it's wonderful to hear that. No, I thought he had some really cool insight into what's going on with our players and even things like, you know, Dennis having an off day, but still overall things are progressing well for him. Yep. And yeah. the fact that Milos has this success perhaps in Australia because he is coming in each year with a little bit of rest behind him at the start of the season. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, we'll, we'll uh, break down these uh, matches as well for you. We're going to start on the women's side and just talk a bit about what transpired through the first week of the Australian Open. And I don't know if it is surprising or not when we see a, a big pile of upsets on the women's side. We always talk about how open it is, but I have to say I was completely floored when Serena Williams went out to a player in Wang Xian, a player that she defeated at the U.S. Open in 44 minutes, 6-1, 6 love. I, I just didn't even see potential for Wang winning that match. Clearly some things were picked up along the way, um, you know, by uh, Wang Xian after that defeat. Like, clearly it was a moment, okay, I've got to get back to the drawing board here. Yeah. Because that was super embarrassing to have that happen. And uh, I think one of the things was, you know, beefing up the physical side of things Mm -hmm. to be able to contend with that kind of power. But good on her for going out there, not only making tactical changes, but also just mentally saying, like, I'm not going to allow this to happen again. And I'm not going to be intimidated despite that really lopsided result. Well, it was very interesting uh, because in her post-match press conference, she she did hit on the fact that losing 6-1, 6-love to Serena was a major positive for her. It was a major motivator for her to uh, have a realization, I have to not only hit with more power, I have to withstand someone hitting with the power 
that Serena has and possesses. Uh, and again here, Williams falling short of Grand Slam number 24. Maybe we really shouldn't be obsessed with that number, but uh, it is a quest for Serena to uh, tie and perhaps break Margaret Court's record. And the more Grand Slams that come and go, I wonder for Serena at age 38, is this more of a mental hurdle or physical hurdle? Well, it doesn't get any easier, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But she has performed really well in the slam since coming back from becoming a parent. She's been really close. This is, you know, probably the the worst one of all. I mean, you take the French out of the equation because of the clay, perhaps, uh, and she was dealing with some injuries around the French, Cannon, too. Sophia Cannon, of course, has become a great player. Right? So, And she didn't have a lot of clay lead-up, if any clay lead-up, I don't think, last year. So, But on a hard court to go out this early is, uh, yeah, that's definitely a shocker and one that's not going to sit well with her. I mean... In the post-match press conference, she spoke about how it was unprofessional of her to to lose that way. And uh, and, and you look at that section of the draw now, like kaboom, just blown wide open that we have. I mean, Kennan is not a, a total surprise because she has played great tennis since last year. Yeah. Uh, but Anz Jabour, uh, the first Tunisian woman to make it this far in a slam, mm-hmm. uh, didn't see that one coming whatsoever. So... Uh, this is affording other people great opportunities, which is something that we have seen uh, at times over the, the last couple of years on the WTA tour. Um, but to see Serena go out, I mean, she was my pick to win, so that's why I shouldn't make picks publicly <laughs> ever. Uh, but your pick also didn't make it uh, that much farther. Yeah, and uh, again, kind of a U.S. Open revenge match because uh, Naomi Osaka months ago when she played Coco Goff, who was and still is just 15 years old. Unbelievable to think of that. But Osaka comfortably handled Coco Goff at the U.S. Open. I want to say 6-3, 6-love, actually. So very confident win there. And Osaka really breezed through her first few rounds at this tournament. She looked really strong uh, and just had an off day, uh, firstly, number of errors in that match. And Coco Goff just never backs down from the moment. She is embracing the the big stage, which is just incredible to me. I don't like to put a major weight of expectation on players, particularly young players, but I, I can't envision any reality where Coco Goff isn't winning Grand Slams within, you know, three, four years minimum. I mean, this isn't a Melody Uden kind of moment from uh, back in the, the late 2000s there where she made the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open right. at quite a young age and, mm-hmm. and captured everyone's imagination and never was able to really take that anywhere further. But I, I still think we do have to be a little bit cautious. I mean, you look at what Jeannie Bouchard did when she was 19. So, okay, admittedly a few years older and more experienced, but making three slam semis and one of those going to the finals of Wimbledon as well. And she's never been able to get back to that. So you, you do have to be careful in one sense, but Coco's giving us an awful lot of reason to be optimistic. And uh, maybe Naomi Osaka shouldn't have been so kind to Coco after that U.S. Open <laughs> defeat, you know? Right, uh, and, and Naomi said it, she was very impressed by how much Coco had improved in just that four-month, four- to five-month span that already her serve was stronger, she was hitting cleaner and harder. That two-handed back in is great. Her movement already seems like she's one of the best movers on tour, and she still hasn't turned 16 yet. Uh, Sophia Kennan got the best of her in the uh, in the fourth round in uh, three sets, but uh, Naomi Osaka exiting early, so my prediction wrong there. And then other big names that maybe we thought we would see a breakthrough from, like a Karolina Pliskova, who is entering as the second seed. Uh, she bows out early as well, which was rather surprising to me. 
uh, Alina Svitolina really blown off the court in this tournament. Yeah, Svitolina hasn't really come out of the gate flying so far this no. year, and she goes down to a resurgent Garbina Muguruza, uh, but 6-1-6-2, that's going to hurt. Another one that went out before I would have expected was Belinda Bencic, 6-love, mm-hmm. 6-1 to Annette Contevite. I was going through my Twitter list. I didn't see the match, but I saw Jimmy48, our favorite WTA photographer, who was asking people, like, was Belinda injured? Like, what happened? Just <laughs> yeah. because that scoreline was mm-hmm. so unexpected. Um, and when I look at Svitolina and Pliskova, I think another opportunity missed to uh, get that first slam because those are my two in terms of who hasn't won a major yet that you would definitely say it's it's possible for, and we've perhaps been waiting and expecting in the last two years for it to happen. Pliskova as well, who's a little bit older than Svitolina, Uh, And she had been playing so well at the start of the season, so that must be awfully frustrating. But at least it was competitive. Two tie-break sets to Nastia Pavlyuchenkova, who's been playing some terrific tennis as well. Yeah, and she just had a major upset over Angelique Kerber as well. So she she is certainly at the top of her game. Maybe Madison Keys is another name we kind of lump in that conversation of can she break through and win a Grand Slam? And it looked like potentially friendly draw for her, but she goes out to uh, Maria Sakari of Greece in straight sets in the third round. And we know we're going to get a first-time Grand Slam champion for Australia, but we have a handful of players who have won Grand Slams here. Simona Halep has kind of been breezing along nicely. Ashley Barty, of course, our world number one French Open champion from last year and, and playing at her home slam. Petra Kvitova, she was finalist last year and she's won a couple of Wimbledons. And then this major resurgence from Garbina Muguruza, who we go back, you know, three, four years, four years ago, she was at the the peak of the sport and then she had kind of completely fallen off the map the last couple to couple of seasons inconsistent play and an injury and here she is probably playing some of the best tennis i've seen from her in in years yeah her last slam win was wimbledon in 2017 she last made the semis at roland garros in 2018 so it's been a couple of quiet years um but certainly showing that she is uh, still a gamer and someone we should not have forgotten about uh i'm not going out and making any more picks it's just not going <laughs> to do me any good uh you know my reputation which is Already, you know, not necessarily, I don't even know if I have a reputation, nice. but, but <laughs> I just want to say, uh, I, I think it's going to be a repeat slam champion because they've got that experience. They've been there before, a little extra comfort level, yes. whether it's a Barty, a Kvitova, Halep, I mean, any of them know how to play and to perform when you get to this stage. Yeah, for me, I have four names who I don't think are ready to win this title. And that would be Sophia Kennan, Anjabur, Pavlyuchenkova, and Annette Contevate. I, I don't think they're quite ready for a breakthrough on a hard court to, to pull off this Grand Slam. So, yes, I would agree. I think we're getting a Grand Slam champion from one of these four players who have done it before. And one of your notes that I'm just looking over here from uh, today's little pre-episode <laughs> yes. is, uh, would Bianca have been favored uh, after all these early exits we saw and uh, I mean it sure would be nice to think so Mm -hmm. Um, and and you'd have to think she'd have a good shot against many of these players but uh, more than anything when I when I read that and look at that I'm just kind of like ah what a bummer that she's not healthy and able to be here (laughs) and and we hope that she's getting closer I haven't heard anything about is it imminent Uh, what's her next tournament that she's going to be playing um, but it sure will be nice to to just have her fit and healthy and, and able yeah. to compete again. Yeah, I had heard through the grapevine that they're hopeful that Bianca Andreescu can play for Fed Cup, which would obviously be, uh, be coming towards the tail end of February, so that would be great to see. I, I was chuckling earlier because... Uh, 
someone texted me the other day, wow, Bianca would have won this tournament on one leg. And I, th- <laughs> and I thought to myself, that, that's well, a bit much. No, that might be a bit much, but yes, if Bianca that's not was humble ha- confidence, that's uh, <laughs> that might that be, be a little, overconfidence, a little bit beyond that. But uh, I do think a healthy Bianca, I mean, you look at what has happened to this draw. She certainly would have been a contender to win it, uh, but we just hope she can return healthy to the tour. Uh, you know, we've already sort of reviewed our picks here. Serena to win wrong. Uh, Naomi Osaka for myself wrong. I should mention a bunch of other pundits and experts were picking those two. Oh yeah, everyone screwed up on this one, right? Yes, yes. yes who, who picked Muguruza? Show me. Oh, none. Nobody, not, not even nobody. the Spanish press I mean, would some, have, you some, know? A few people I did see pick Ashley Barty to win this title. Sure. Uh, you had Marquetta Vondrasova as your dark horse pick. Uh, and I don't regret that. You know what? That was going to be a, yeah, a hit or miss, uh, given the uh, lack of match play she's had over the last six months or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, tough first-round opponent in, Kuz- I believe it was Kuznetsova. Yes. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things is we need more time to make these picks. You know, we need to see the draw before we make these picks. And unfortunately, when it was presented to us, and we're not going to say who presented, but (laughs) we just needed a little more, like 24 more hours to just seem a little less... Yes. Yeah. And my dark horse, Ekaterina Alexandrova, she had won 10 consecutive matches going into the tournament. I felt, why not roll the dice with her? She won her first two matches and then uh, ran into a red-hot Petra Kvitova. So no shame in losing to Kvitova in straight sets there. Uh, we had a meeting between Caroline Wozniacki and Serena Williams, potentially lined up for the fourth round. Of course, that uh, didn't happen. And I'll remind our listeners, uh, later on in the episode, we will be giving away a signed Caroline Wozniacki ball that you, match that match ben you know whenever there's a match that you really want to see happen like how cool would it have been to see serena and caroline go up against each other her last favoring serena of course sure. but that would have been just such a nice way even you know if you have to go out to go out at the hands of the greatest of all time so when you've got a deep friendship with it would have been kind of a nice little story mm-hmm. but it never works out that way and i don't know if there's any matches over time where you were really badly wanting to see something come about and it didn't. Um, <laughs> well, I'll just point out the one that everybody's always hoping for, and it never happens, is Federer Nadal at the U.S. Open. Just never happens. There's always something uh, that that screws it up. You know, the the other year, Del Potro upsetting Federer. So then you had a Del Potro Nadal semifinal. Grigor Dimitrov upset Federer just this past year. So we didn't get it again. It just it never happens. For me, it was going back to my childhood. I loved watching Becker and Edberg play in the finals of Wimbledon. Okay. And they did it three consecutive years from 88 through till 90. And then three years later in 1993, when they were both still competitive, but no longer like the dominant grass court players, Mm -hmm. they each made the separate semis at Wimbledon only to face off against Pete Sampras and Jim Courier. And I was so excited to get one more grass court final between the two that I grew up idolizing. And neither one of them won, and that that didn't come to fruition, unfortunately. Well, that's unfortunate, but at least you got to see it three times. That's true. Good. And that's what hooked me on tennis. So well, there you go. Yeah. And that's why you're here right now as uh, we're talking about tennis. Uh, I will mention the other Canadians still lingering and doing well in the draw on the double side is Gabby Dabrowski in women's doubles and in mixed doubles and her and Yelena Ostapenko uh, playing their quarterfinal match, perhaps while you listen to this. Uh, and she's also still in the mixed doubles field with uh, Henri Continent. So a couple of opportunities for Gabby and I- I'm hoping her and Ostapenko 
Petropenko are potentially building some chemistry there, that this can be a season-long partnership or more. Yeah, I mean, they've committed to the first quarter of the year, so I guess probably, hey, let's see how it, how it works out. So mm-hmm. far, it's looking pretty good. It's not a brand-new partnership. They have played together in the past a little bit. They were at the Rogers Cup together back in, I want to say, 2017 it was. Um, but, you know, maybe rekindling some of that uh, magic. And sometimes you get back together after a break and it just works a little bit better. And here we are, second week of a slam. And again, who can we almost always count on to be there without fail is Gabriela Dabrowski. Yes, and I, I suppose when it comes to Melbourne, Milos Raonic also almost equally reliable in that sense, making second weeks of slams. Uh, five quarterfinals here. Very impressive. Uh, we'll venture over to the men's side, of course, and uh, quarterfinal draws are set. As I mentioned, the big three all still in it. Rafael Nadal, the world number one. Novak Djokovic, the world number two. Uh, both players have just dropped one set along the way, and Roger Federer, while well, he's had uh, one major scare that he survived, but he's made it to the quarterfinals. Who do you think on the men's side is playing the best tennis right now? Not Roger Federer. Okay. Although, although getting better from that five-setter against Millman, which was, you know, I caught the last set and was so impressed with John Millman. Oh, yeah. He competed his absolute tail off. He was so confident. Mm-hmm. He looked, there was not any doubt whatsoever. It wasn't like I'm just enjoying the moment of being here, playing in front of my home crowd against one of the greatest players of all time. He really felt and believed that that match was his. He was so pumped up. How often do you see a crowd that is equally behind Roger Federer's opponent? Yeah. Which it certainly felt like they were huge cheers both ways. It almost felt like the entire crowd was cheering simultaneously for both players, their hometown boy and, you know, the great Roger Federer. That final tiebreak, I mean, if it was a regular tiebreak, Millman would have won the thing. Uh, it was just at 8-4 when he was leading that he finally showed uh, some weakness. As you mentioned earlier when we were chatting, he flinched. Yes. Um, but heck of a performance from from John Millman. I was just super, super uh, enthralled to watch him and wondering how the heck this guy isn't in the top 30 if he can play like that. Yeah, it's incredible. Normally when you see those performances developing, you're thinking – Wow, John Millman, he's he's playing so well. Like he can't sustain this, though. You know, you, you see it for a set and a half, and then Federer has a takeover. You see it for maybe a couple of sets that they split, and then there's a drop off. And we never got a drop off from John Millman. He was right there, right on the precipice of this monster upset. And we know he he beat Roger Federer a couple of years ago at the U.S. Open. He he knows how to handle that big stage against Federer. Uh, his game just seems to to line up pretty well against Roger, who wasn't really trusted when to attack Millman and, and what he could do in these lengthy rallies. And and I think Millman is also one of the fittest players the ATP Tour has. So uh, he, I think, belongs probably top 40 for sure and maybe top 30. So we'll see what he can manage in 2020. Um, some other exciting matches. Nick Kyrgios defeated Karen Hachinov in a, a five-set thriller. That also went to the super tiebreak. Kyrgios called that one of the best wins of his career after he pulled that out. And then waiting in the wings was a very well-rested Rafael Nadal, who had, you know, made hay of Pablo Carreno Busta. They played what I thought was a great four-set match. Um, Of course, Nadal won, and he's in the quarterfinals, but everybody's talking about how motivated Nick Kyrgios looked throughout the entire tournament. He seems like a different guy. I don't know if he, like, matured and finally grew up over the offseason or what, but Mm. he just seemed to handle himself with a lot more sort of class and poise throughout this tournament. 
uh, whether it was beforehand with being the first one really to say, hey, we got to raise some money for what's going on here with the bushfires. Yeah. I think he was the first one to say he was going to donate money for his aces. And then John McEnroe stepped up and said he would donate, I forget, was it like a thousand bucks for every set that uh, Kyrgios won at the Australian Open, mm-hmm. which Kyrgios seemed really humbled by. Whatever the case may be, he's acting a lot more like someone that we can all get behind and um, and sort of support and and promote because there's never been a doubt that his ability to draw people to the sport is almost unparalleled the way that he can connect with uh, young tennis fans and has cross-promotional appeal beyond just tennis. Uh, But then sometimes his antics have just been too much for so many of us to be able to sort of balance out and, and come to terms with. So I just love the way, and, and you know, we're not going to get into it extensively, but him and Nadal had a, a bit of a, a, a rift, obviously, mm-hmm. purely because of comments that Kyrgios had made in the past. And it just seems to me like maybe this could be a turning point. Maybe I'm speaking too soon here. We're still going to see some, <laughs> some meltdowns and classic bonehead behavior at some point this season. But it's just um, encouraging for me. And I think if he can stay along this track, that he's going to put himself into the mix. Um, you know, if he can focus on the tennis entirely, he's going to be in that mix if he can be healthy and focus on the tennis to uh, to be a potential slam finalist or winner at some point. Yeah, certainly a wonderful first month for him. And maybe that uh, being placed on probation by the ATP last year was was the ultimate wake-up call in his behavior, shifting to towards positive attitude. Obviously, he still gets frustrated on, on court, and many players do, but not letting it completely boil over uh, and, and lose yourself. So he's been, and of course, the, the effort level, the giving 100% of, of yourself. That's what he did that entire tournament, and he did it ATP Cup as well, playing for his country. So we'll see uh, if he can sustain this level uh, throughout the calendar year. Great first month, though. Anyhow, uh, Nadal into the quarterfinals gets Dominic Team next. I think that's a fascinating match. Stan Wawrinka, I had actually tabbed him as my potential Cinderella story of this tournament, and he delivered a huge five-set upset win over Danil Medvedev, a win which which he called his best victory post-knee surgery. So I thought that was incredible. Yeah, and post-knee sur- surgery, if you look at his uh, results at the slams, two first-round appearances, uh, four second-round appearances, one third-round appearance, and three quarterfinals. So he's looking to finally have that breakthrough deep into a slam. His last semifinal was three years ago at the Aussie Open. He's turning 35 this March. But he looked incredible out there against Medvedev. From what I caught, I was just so impressed with his movement on the court. His foot worked. He looked so energetic and moving around so well, even in the later stages of that one. And just his decision-making. Like, when he had a moment to think before making the shot, he always seemed to be making the right shot selection. And so, uh, yeah, this is going to be really neat to see. Watch, we'll end up with the big three and Stan Wawrinka, the only <laughs> one of the only other ones who's won slams over the past 10 or so years. That's right. As our final four, if, uh, you know, if that continues. But, yeah, um, let's let's be honest. It's It feels kind of unlikely that we're going to get a, a grand, a fresh Grand Slam champion here. Uh, credit to Tennis Sandgren kind of emerging out of nowhere and making a quarterfinals run here. He'll get Roger Federer next. Federer has had a very cushy and comfortable draw in terms of player rankings uh, to get to this stage and I'm already kind of penciling him into the semifinals at, at this point. Uh, Milos Raonic against Novak Djokovic. We should probably do a quick sort of preview of this and hopefully you can listen to the podcast maybe while you're watching the match live at like three or four in the morning but uh, Milos Raonic 
has really played like perfect tennis for him through the first week of this event. His serve has not been broken once. 82 aces through four matches. Uh, he's won 87% of his first serve points, which is unbelievable. 61% of his second serve points. And I, I just want to bring up a quote from Marin Cilic, who he defeated in the fourth round. Cilic said post-match, this is the best I've seen Milos play in his entire career. Unbelievable level. I think he could win the tournament. That was pretty staggering to me. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm sold on Milos Raonic winning this tournament, uh, but has to be very positive to hear uh, what other players are saying about him, the guys who just faced him. And it's incredible how he's doing this again because it was a year ago that we were both super impressed with how he was playing uh, in Melbourne as well. Correct. And he came out with some big wins to get to the quarterfinals where we thought, let's be honest, that he was going to have no problems with Lucas Pui. Mm -hmm. And instead he went out in, I believe it was four sets. Yes. Now this year he's got a much, much tougher opponent. And if Novak gets to the semis, he's never lost the Aussie Open once attaining the semifinals. So look out for that. Uh, Novak's also 9-0 and against Milos and something like 27-0 and against Canadians Lifetime. Um, sorry, Canada. But uh, <laughs> that being said, Milos does look terrific. The serve cranking that forehand without any reservations. And to me, the most surprising thing is how good the backhand has been looking at certain points, which, you know, has always been people's criticism of Milos as well, the backhand, come on, right? But he's had some excellent backhand shots. And if you're putting all that together and bring it into a match against the uh, the world's, I was almost going to call him the world's number one player. Sorry, Rafa. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the number one contender, I would say, at, yes, uh, I at, here in Melbourne then then you couldn't feel any more confident than than how Milos feels right now. Yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, the way he's serving right now is just allowing him to swing so freely in return games so he can attack those backhands and rip them down the line. It's still unexpected when he does it because, yeah, it, that's kind of what we view as the Achilles heel of his game. I'll also point out that I think his lateral movement is, is stronger than it was the past couple of years. I feel like he's getting to a few more balls and getting back in position. His court coverage seems Improved. It's never going to be, you know, great court coverage given his size and his body type, but an improvement there can certainly help. And uh, if he can somehow isolate Novak Djokovic on those return games, not give Novak opportunities, maybe he can pull something, you know, incredible off here. And, you know, Novak does lead this head to head 9 nothing. I look at their last match, though, which was 2018 Cincinnati. Novak winning that 7-5, 4-6, 6-3. And Milos Raonic was up a break in the third set. So that was probably one that he kind of let slip away. He's going to have to be very, very mentally tough because we know how mentally tough Novak Djokovic is. I think whatever happens, win or lose, uh, Milos can be proud of how he started the season. Definitely. And then I think we should either bubble wrap him or cryogenically freeze him <laughs> and just bring him out periodically at key moments. Like bring him back up for Indian, Indian Wells. Wells in Miami, Miami, put him back in the freezer, yeah. bring him up for the grass court season. <laughs> you can play maybe two clay court events. It's just the body starts breaking down. And if we could just avoid that, right? If we could just avoid that. And I've said this on Twitter recently, and I've had some people who come at me, not come at me, but debate me, which is, which is fine that they don't feel like Milos is a top 10 player. Well, I'm sorry when he's healthy, he's absolutely still of that caliber. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the results at uh, Grand Slams kind of speak for themselves in that category. Just to quickly review what our other Canadians did, we touched on Denis Shapovalov falling in the first round of Martin Fuksovich in four sets. Something that I just viewed as a nervous performance and Shapovalov uh, just never really found his rhythm in this match whatsoever. And 
he was prepared heading into it, which Michael Downey touched on. He arrived in Australia a couple of weeks before 2020 had even begun. He was ready. He was playing great tennis, and it was a bad day at the office. I agree with Downey's assessment. He was coming in at his best possible, you know, with the way his game had been. Yep. But to speak to the mental side, of course, and coming into a Grand Slam and you're 20 years old, that's still going to make you nervous. I mean, look at Alexander Zverev, who's a couple years older, Mm -hmm. but also has consistently not been able to bring his best level of tennis at the majors. What's unfortunate to me is not that he lost. Okay, these things happen, and he lost to a very game, uh, Martin Fuksovic, who's gone on to also play well, beating uh, Yannick Sinner, another young talent, take the first set off Roger Federer, too. Yep. Uh, a very good player, despite his ranking being, you know, outside of the top 50 right now. But Dennis's mental fortitude needs some work. And I was not really happy to see him, you know, berating the umpire, uh, complaining about getting a violation for tossing his racket, which was absolutely uh, fair to be uh, put upon him. Mm-hmm. You got to let that stuff slide. Yeah, I think uh, maybe his body language in this match was a little problematic. And... I I kind of figure with his shot making and his ability, he is obviously a stronger player than Fuksovic and no respect to the Hungarian who played a great match. Uh, I I thought he would turn it around after a bad first set and it it just did not happen. He couldn't shake it. He just couldn't shake it. He looked like a bratty teenager out there. And it's like, you know, maybe you need a chit chat with Bianca Andreescu about some meditation and visualization (laughs) techniques. And I'm, I'm being serious actually, because I I think he could benefit from that. Yeah. I I gather Dennis didn't really particularly think anything would go wrong in that first round match. And I was saying to another tennis fan the other day, uh, especially with the level we're at in the ATP, you can't afford a bad match. Everybody in the top 100 is a good player. Everybody in the top 75 is a, a really good player. And Martin Fuksovic, he's, he's been close to the top 30. He is a very good player. So if you're not at your 100%, you're not going to beat him. And, and I think that's what happened. Uh, maybe similar for Felix Auger-Aliassime didn't play his best match. And Gulbis. Then, and then plays a guy, a veteran in Ernest Gulbis, who's been to the top 10 before. He's been a French Open semifinalist six years ago. He's capable of awesome tennis. He has this huge two-handed backhand. And uh, he won that match in four sets over Felix, who said afterwards he played a little too passive and let Golbus be the aggressor in this match. Yeah, Golbus has experience. He's also an experienced head case. But unfortunately for Felix, he had it together for this one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Felix, you know, it hasn't been the best of late. And uh, I, I don't know, maybe he needs to get back on the clay courts to kind of uh, get uh, more more comfortable and confident because he did have some success in early 2019 when he played a bunch of smaller clay court events. Yes, in South uh, America. I would right. imagine he's going to go that route potentially again because he does play well on the surface. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest it because, yeah, maybe time to just, you know, try something a little bit different. Uh, don't stress too much if the hard court uh, thing isn't working at the moment. Uh, but yeah, kind of stagnant for right now, I guess, is, is Felix's game. Yeah, and there were a couple key moments in that match which probably could have turned it. He served for the first set at 5-4, got his serve broken there. He had won the second set, so you think maybe if he resolves his serve and closes out that first and gets that two sets to love lead, it's a completely different story, but it uh, it didn't happen that way, uh, of course, As uh, you've reminded us many times, still a teenager, still just 19 years old. Uh, I don't think we need to dwell on this result too much. We wanted to touch on a few Canadians who are in action this week at Newport Beach. uh, Peter Polanski and Braden Schnur are playing in the men's field. And then in the women's field, we have Catherine Sebov and Jeannie Bouchard was one match shy of qualifying for the Australian Open. 
She has dropped her first round match uh, in Newport Beach to Alexa Glatch, 6 1, 6 2. So that's mildly a, better than her scoreline a year ago against Bianca. <laughs> Bianca is a bit of a different player, unfortunately, than uh, Alexa Glatch. So a bit yep. disappointing there for Jeannie Bouchard uh, falling 6 1, 6 2 in the first round here, but we still have three Canadians to maybe look forward to there. And we should also mention, I don't know if we touched on it or not, but Vashik going out in the first round. Evil Carlos. To 49 yes. year old. No, sorry, 42 year old. Whatever <laughs> 40. he is. 40 year old. Ivo Karlovic, which that has to be seen as a as an unfortunate result, yeah. because again he's been playing so well in singles play, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it just didn't translate here. So back to work for Vashik, who's going to try and get that ranking back up towards the top 100. Yes, and uh, again he's got no points to defend from now until uh, grass court season. So no reason why he shouldn't be within the top 100 sooner rather than later. I think he can get there quite quickly, to be honest with you. A couple names that we need to uh, mention. Uh, Inducted to the 2020 Tennis Hall of Fame, and we'll start on the men's side, Goran Ivanisevic. Uh, tremendous career four Wimbledon finals and he was that player that towards the end of the career everybody was rooting for to get that grass court win at I Wimbledon. was one of them and then it finally came in 2001 he did it you could see how special that moment was for him to finally break through he was also a Davis Cup champion we've seen him in Milos Raonic's box as a as a coach for Milos he's part of Djokovic's team right now and he also used to coach Marin Cilic for years and was actually a coach of Cilic when he won his lone U.S. Open title he is my second favorite male tennis player of all time wow so Boris Becker was my first and and, and, Goran. and Goran was my second because he's j- just his spirit is just like it's not because of the big serve I wasn't like into the big servers necessarily although Boom Boom and Goran both had big ones uh, <laughs> but I just loved his attitude he was just so kind of kooky yeah. and fun loving and that event in 2001 at Wimbledon my god the atmosphere was epic between him and Pat Rafter and I just yeah that was probably I've never been as happy for a tennis player as I was for him to see him win that Wimbledon and how he did it as a wild card, um, you know, and put it all together after those other losses that you had mentioned was just remarkable to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm super stoked to see him go into the, the Hall of Fame. And then on the female side, we've got Conchita Martinez. And actually, I really did not like Conchita Martinez really? when I was growing up because she beat Martina Navratilova at Wimbledon. Ah. And Martina was in her like mid-30s, I feel like, at the time. And I really wanted to see her kind of get one last title there and uh and so i was kind of disappointed that uh, conchita martinez reigned on her parade but <laughs> uh, another fantastic player who peaked at i believe number two in the rankings and also someone who's thriving now as a coach yeah and she's actually rejoined garbina muguruza which is pretty interesting now joining as full-time coach for muguruza and we're seeing this ultimate resurgence from the spanish player already into the quarterfinals of the australian open so maybe she has that magic touch as coach uh, she was also coaching carolina pliskova for a couple years there and did coach muguruza when she won her wimbledon title in 2017 uh, so congrats to conchita martinez also three olympic medals very impressive and she was one of the players who had a longer career she stuck around for a while 18 years in total so there you are two hall of famers uh inducted for the 2020 class we have reached the end of our episode and as promised uh we are going to give a signed tennis ball uh from caroline wozniacki who had an emotional uh farewell at the australian open falling to Ange- Ange Bour, but really a, a fantastic career 
I got kind of emotional. Did you? You know, I really <laughs> wanted her to get through that match. I thought she was going to as well. She, she beat Diana Yastremska, a real up-and-coming talent. Mm-hmm. No offense to Anz Jabour, but Yastremska is really one of those ones on everyone's radar. Yes, for sure. And she did that in straight sets and came back in both sets from being behind. I thought, hey, maybe we'll have a little Cinderella run from Wozniacki making the second week. But what a career. And I was listening to some old interviews that I had with her over the years and Things that she was most proud of uh, are the improvements that she made late in her career to stay relevant, mm-hmm. even after her ranking had kind of dropped towards the you know, 70, 80 mark a few years ago. And just observations like she was working out too much and it was too much about the fitness <laughs> and realizing that you need to give your body time to recover yeah. and to work on more preventative things like stretching and massage and, uh, and more preventative maintenance. So she she made changes to her game. Um, she was number one for a couple of years in a time when not too many people were able to have prolonged stretches at that ranking. And yeah, she got a lot of criticism world year and world number one twice. Twice. She got a lot of criticism for doing that without having a slam title. Mm -hmm. So I think it was even more rewarding to see her finally get that grand slam in 2018 at the Australian open. Definitely. Uh, but she never felt burdened by that number one. We see a lot of rotating number ones these days who feel like they can't handle that pressure. Yes. Aren't prepared for it. Like Pliskova, like Naomi Osaka, And Caroline talked about how, no, she never had a problem being the number one player in the world. Um, And and one question that uh, made me smile was from a couple years ago at the Rogers Cup in a round table where someone asked her, are we going to see you like Venus Williams playing in your late 30s? And she said, no. And then there was kind of a pause as if more was going to come. And then she just (laughs) said, no, like it was just (laughs) not not happening for her. She was she was aware. Although maybe we'll see. Who knows? I mean, she seems eager to start a family with her husband, David Lee. She's spoken about that. Maybe she comes back in a few years and tries it again. She's only 29. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Kim Kleisters is, is doing it and, and making her comeback this year. So it, it's always possible. Uh, you think we are seeing a few of those names from that era kind of exiting, though, uh, with Caroline Wozniacki. Uh, we had Edgar Radwanska the other year. We said goodbye to Anna Ivanovich. And uh, who else? Uh, Dominika Sibelkova very recently. So we are seeing some of these top players from that crop of kind of the 2010s and, and on uh, leaving the sport. When people 10 years younger than me start retiring, I really feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm getting up there. Oh, that's okay. Uh, but a terrific career and uh, 30 WTA titles, year-end world number one twice. And, uh, of course, the crown jewel, that 2018 Australian Open title. Rogers Cup champ, too, from I believe it was 2010. Yes, you're right. Uh, she did beat uh, Veras Von Areva there in the final. Uh, okay, so we're ready to do our draw, and uh, I know we have done our draw, and uh, we have a winner. And the winner is Mike Mackin. Oh, no, sorry, that's, uh, that's <laughs> not right. Uh, yeah, thank you to everyone who participated. We had about 20 names in the draw this week, and the winner is uh, this week, Christy. So, Christy, we will be in touch through Twitter to get you that signed ball. And again, thanks to Tennis Canada who keep hooking us up with some pretty cool stuff. And we're going to have more of that to come this year. So keep checking back with us. If you haven't won something yet, keep putting your name in there. Uh, we do have some swag from Wilson that's coming up down the line. Mm-hmm. We've got some more signed tennis balls, uh, some Canadian tennis dampeners uh, as well from our friend Justin Hummel. Uh, so check back with us uh, and we will have more draws ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, keep uh, retweeting, liking, and uh, listening to the podcast. We always appreciate all of your feedback. Hope you've been enjoying the Australian Open tennis. I know I have. I haven't 
been enjoying my sleep schedule. That's a different story. Uh, we just have a handful of days left. Uh, thanks for listening. This has been Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.